1983, about 20 miles northwest of Riyadh, Saudi Arabia, the village of Al Uyena lit up for the first time. Solar panels erected in partnership with the United States had brought electricity. Suddenly, villagers could have lights and televisions and refrigerators and air conditioning. The electrification of El Uyena was a product of a half-century-long partnership between the United States and Saudi Arabia. In El Uyena, the United States was playing a central role helping the kingdom embrace modernization and change. El Uyena wasn't a success story, though. The maintenance costs were too high for Saudi Arabia to bother with, and the investment from the United States was too meager. At the end of the day, Saudi Arabia had enough oil money to extend the grid to El Uyena without relying on newfangled technology. Now, more than 35 years later, Saudi Arabia has come back to solar energy. The kingdom plans to spend $2 billion to develop 60 gigawatts of solar power over the next decade. And this time, Americans are nowhere in sight. China is the world's largest manufacturer of solar energy equipment, and Chinese companies dominate the global markets for photovoltaic panels and lithium batteries. In fact, China is the only country in the world with the production capacity and the experience to meet Saudi Arabia's ambitious plans. To get things done at the scale and speed Saudi Arabia wants, Saudi Arabia needs China. So in Saudi Arabia's solar project, Chinese companies are the main contractors. So what happened? How did Saudi Arabia and the rest of the Middle East start looking toward China instead of the United States? I'm your host, John Alterman, Senior Vice President, Zbigniew Brzezinski Chair in Global Security and Geostrategy and Director of the Middle East Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington, DC. And this is the China in the Middle East podcast miniseries. In this episode, we'll look at Chinese economic interests in the region. We'll focus on Chinese energy interests, the Belt and Road Initiative, and how both of those are changing the economic landscape of the Middle East. 60% of China's trade with Europe and Africa passes through Dubai's Jebel Ali port and other major ports in the United Arab Emirates. The UAE has emerged as a key hub for trade going to and from China. I guess China has a couple of priorities of engagement with the Middle East, and the first is, is energy security. That's Karen Young, a resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute. She's worked extensively on the political economy of the Middle East. Karen's right. China not only relies on imported oil, it's the largest oil importer in the world. This all happened really fast. China first became a net importer of oil only in 1993 or so. By the year 2000, China was importing about 1.4 million barrels of crude oil every day. Just 10 years later, that amount had more than tripled to 4.75 million barrels per day. And in the years after 2010, Chinese oil imports kept spiraling upward, setting new records. By 2018, China was importing more than 9 million barrels of oil every day. Throughout that time, somewhere between 40 and 50% of Chinese imported oil came from the Middle East. As Chinese oil imports were increasing in this century, U.S. and European imports were decreasing. 
That provoked a shift. Oil producers had spent a half century developing Western markets, but it became clear that almost all the growth in trade was going to come from Eastern markets. For Middle Eastern states that exported oil, a turn to Asia was a necessity. But for China, the shift to the Middle East is more complicated. Even as China bought more oil from the Middle East, China's Middle Eastern trade remained a fraction of its trade with the developed economies of Europe and the United States. Oil producers had spent a half century developing Western markets, but it became clear that almost all the growth in trade was going to come from Eastern markets. For Middle Eastern states that exported oil, a turn to Asia was a necessity. But for China, the shift to the Middle East is more complicated. Even as China bought more oil from the Middle East, China's Middle Eastern trade remained a fraction of its trade with the developed economies of Europe and the United States. Scott Kennedy, the trustee chair in Chinese business and economics at CSIS, and a leading authority on Chinese economic policy, elaborates. The U.S. and, and China have a $600 billion trading relationship. Total trade between China and Saudi Arabia is a tenth of that, $60 billion a year. About half of that is oil. But nevertheless, that economic relationship with Saudi is really important for the Chinese because of the energy, because of the region. And it's grown a lot in the last decade and continue to grow beyond energy into manufactured products as Saudi Arabia and other countries in the region try to diversify their economies. And so I think in, in that regard, for the Chinese, the, the potential growth for the relationship on economic terms makes it important to them. China's growing oil imports are drawing China to think more and more about its Middle Eastern interests. Again, Karen Young. About 40% of China's oil needs come from the Middle East and come from the Gulf, really, from, also from Iran and, and Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, the UAE, and Oman are the major suppliers. Yes, that is a, a reason why it makes sense for China to be engaged and for these oil exporters to be quite close to China. China's entrance into the Middle East has been big and fast. Over the last decade or so, China's become one of the largest, if not the largest, trading partner of every oil-producing country in the Middle East. But the relationships aren't balanced. For example, China represents about 30% of Iran's global trade. Iran represents less than 1% of China's global trade. Here's Karen Young. Clearly, China is more important to the Middle East and to the Gulf than these states are to China. This imbalance has affected how Middle Eastern states, particularly the Gulf states, do trade and diplomacy with China. They're more willing to make concessions when China can walk away from the table much more easily than they can. This is a really critical time for oil exporters globally, and particularly for the Gulf states. And China represents kind of diversification light for them. It is the Gulf economic development plan. There is a, a real rationale for the political partnerships for trying to compete and attract for these co-investments and to make that relationship work. It's definitely finding that synergy from the Chinese side. It's about energy security, though the Chinese have other sources of energy. They're happy to buy from Russia. They, you know, until not too long ago, were buying from Iran. They buy also from the U.S. They are more diversified. States in the Middle East are trying to build relationships with China that will deepen ties on both sides. 
They're helping build refineries in China that are customized for the heavier crudes that come out of the Gulf. And they're expanding joint projects in petrochemicals, the building blocks of plastics, artificial fibers, and many pharmaceuticals and cosmetics. In part because of what's at stake, Middle Eastern governments are willing to do things with China that they've been reluctant to do before. For example, in July 2019, China became a co-developer of oil fields in Abu Dhabi. I think the most important Chinese investment in the region now is really this ability for China to be a co-developer of oil fields in Abu Dhabi. That's Karen Young again. That's really quite unprecedented, both on the part of the Abu Dhabi government to give access to another government-owned entity. They have had concession agreements with international oil companies before, but this really takes things to a different level in terms of sovereignty. The concession highlights the lengths Gulf states are willing to go to ensure continued access to the Chinese market. An increased demand in China for energy has deepened Chinese investment in the Middle East. Much of this investment falls under an umbrella project called the Belt and Road Initiative. It is the Silk Road that brought China and Arab states together, which makes us natural partners for jointly promoting the Belt and Road Initiative. Let's jointly promote the Silk Road spirit hand in hand, deepen China-Arab cooperation, and work together for the Chinese dream and Arab revitalization, and for peace and development of mankind. China first proposed the Belt and Road Initiative, the BRI, in 2013. Geographically centering the roots of the Belt and Road Initiative, Arab countries are the natural partners in building the initiative along with China. In fact, no one knows exactly what the Belt and Road Initiative is. Broadly speaking, it's a strategy where China supports its neighbor's development while deepening trade with China. But there's no definitive list of projects, no authoritative map, and no particular budget behind it. What we know is that it's an ambitious idea that will involve over 60 countries and more than two-thirds of the world's population. Everything else is open to speculation. And China benefits because the vagueness of the whole enterprise allows almost every country to imagine that it is strategically important to an ascendant China. What is clear to a lot of close China observers is that this is intended as a solution to China's problems, not the neighbor's problems. Doug Paul, who you heard from in the previous episode from the Carnegie Endowment, explains. The Belt and Road was originally conceived as a way to deploy China's excess industrial capacity abroad. We've seen this before with the U.S. after World War II, Japan in the 70s and 80s, even little Korea in the, in the 90s. They had excess capacity at the end of their industrialization phase, and they deployed it overseas. And China had more than others. So President Xi Jinping created an economic policy, the BRI, that's designed to aid a class of Chinese workers suffering from globalization. Xi Jinping is has been appealing to China's losers in globalization in much the way Trump has appealed to America's losers. Xi Jinping was able to throw them a bone by giving them the Belt and Road. And in China's periphery, the BRI has become a juggernaut. Coming out of nowhere just a few years ago, China's reach now seems to underpin most interactions between the Middle East and China. 
whether any investment occurs becomes secondary to the diplomacy and goodwill built by the conversations around it. Even the mere promise of investment has strengthened ties with China. And from the perspective of Middle Eastern governments, those stronger ties with China bring added benefits. Having a China card to play allows them to turn around and bargain for better deals from other investors. Doug Paul shares this experience. I've had foreign ministers from across North Africa talk about how they feel empowered by the Chinese involvement because they're able to say to the European or American creditors or investors, we got a better offer. Can you beat it? The BRI has been promoted as a massive economic plan that's beneficial for all the countries involved. And some Chinese money has indeed flowed into the Middle East. Overall, though, the most important impact has been that the BRI has framed the way Middle Eastern governments think about China. Karen Young says the bottom line is this. This is really effective branding on the part of the Chinese. You know, what is the BRI? Everything and anything that wants to call itself part of the BRI can do so. It really becomes somewhat meaningless. But what might be meaningless economically isn't meaningless diplomatically. Unlike most Western states, China argues that economic development doesn't require social and political change. China doesn't come in and argue for an open press or free elections, and it doesn't press to release political prisoners. For Middle Eastern governments afraid of losing control of their population, the China model, as both an economic and a political idea, holds special promise. But even effective branding has its limits. As the BRI has grown more complex, it's encountered more complications. Doug Paul explains. They didn't have much human resources, talent available to them to guide the investments and activities. And it turned out they could blow back at them with losses or corruption and the like. For that reason, China has for the last several years been scaling down the investments and putting them to much more stringent tests for durability, debt sustainability, etc. It's one thing to understand where we are. But the remarkable thing about China's presence in the Middle East is to think about where we were only recently and what that means about where we're going. 20 years ago, the Middle East was a sideshow for China. China was all but irrelevant to the Middle East. The initial catalyst for China's greater role in the region was oil. As China's energy needs skyrocketed over the last two decades, the Middle East has increasingly viewed China as a viable market to supplement shrinking U.S. energy demand. But China's involvement in the region hasn't just been oil. As China bought more oil, it invested more in the region, especially in terms of infrastructure. And the region invested more in China. Now, for almost all the governments in the region, they have to think about China when they think about their futures. And that is a very big change. But from a Chinese perspective, Will growing economic ties lead to further political and security involvement for China in the Middle East? Karen Young's answer is mixed. I think what you're asking is really the million-dollar question, is do these economic interests lead to political and security engagements? And I think the answer is, is yes, maybe, but not everywhere and not immediately. Next time in the podcast, we look more at China's security policies in the Middle East. We talk to Andrew Scobell and Dean Cheng about China's military capabilities, technology, 
and they're based in Djibouti. I'm your host, John Alterman, and this is the China in the Middle East miniseries. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Mm-hmm.